Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we intend to keep you guys up on the literature, and we want to make that easy by spoon-feeding it to you. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all great articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we never, ever want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch and we'll help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by Jason Lesnick, Laura Murphy, Chris Thome, and Clay Smith. So I bring to you the first article titled, The Effect of Ketamine versus Atomidate for Rapid Sequence Intubation on Maximum Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score, a randomized clinical trial out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. This is yet another comparison of ketamine and atomidate. The results aren't likely to surprise you that much. Now, you know, with questions like this asked as thoroughly as this question, sometimes I wonder why trials keep being done that don't really offer that much to the subject. But I can't get too mad about this article because it ended in 2015 and took a full eight years to get published. Was that negative results bias? Probably not so much because this is definitely has been a very interesting question. So what's the deal? Ugh, we'll never know. Regardless, this was a single-center parallel group partially blinded RCT performed in the emergency department. Partially blinded because the ED personnel knew which medication the patient had gotten, but the ICU did not. They compared Atomidate to Ketamine in the setting of RSI. One dose of each and pretty regular dosing, 2 megs per keg for Ketamine and 0.3 megs per keg for Atomidate. They recruited 143 patients in all. The primary outcome was mortality, but they actually changed it partway through to a maximum SOFA score within three days of hospitalization. Um, They did this while trying to obtain FDA approval um, for their exception for informed consent. It's not really as good of an outcome, but the authors do argue that SOFA scores are correlated with mortality. And the study should have been powered well enough to detect a two-point difference, which is thought to be clinically significant as well. About 70 patients were in each group, a few withdrew, and they had complete data for 129 patients, the median age of 50, and 36% were women. Now, the maximum SOFA score for each group was quite similar, 6.5 for ketamine and 7 for atomidate. These were not significantly different. The secondary outcomes of first-pass success, hypotension in the emergency department, vasopressor-free days, ICU-free days, and 30-day mortality were also not statistically significant. Now, the difference in mortality seemed big, though. It was 11% versus 21%, which, while not statistically significant, seems a little scary. But since the primary outcome was SOFA score within three days, I tried to look into when these patients had their SOFA scores peaking. Um, But they didn't actually report any of those times, unfortunately. Because, you know, no offense, but a SOFA score, you know, 48 hours after my ketamine RSI dose, I don't think it's going to be terribly related to my ketamine. But... I digress. Anyways, this was a negative trial, and I'm going to continue to favor ketamine for most of my RSIs. In a spoonful, ketamine and atomidate appear equivalent, again, for intubations in the emergency department in a relatively small RCT. And then we skip to the fourth article, titled Effect of Viral Illness on Procalcitonin as a Predictor of Bacterial Infection in Febrile Infants, out of the journal Hospital Pediatrics. 
Can't say I'm always a big supporter of strictly following protocolized care. But when it comes to febrile infants, I am more than happy to follow algorithms to a T. It's something that's well studied and clinically hard to be certain if patients don't have anything scary. This article works to kind of perhaps disrupt the pathways that we've come to love. Not a complete overhaul, but it raises an eyebrow, that's for sure. Okay, so one of the components of the septic workup in infants is the procalcitonin. In theory, this should be elevated in the case of bacterial infections, but not so for viral infections. This is a distinction which we want to make in little kids who are still going to get all the regular colds that all of us get. Now, the American Association of Pediatrics recommends a procalcitonin cutoff of 0.5 nanograms per ml as positive for further workup for bacterial infections, likely meaning that this kid needs an LP. Here's the catch, though. Not only do viral infections not usually increase the procalcitonin, but they might even suppress it, even in the presence of a bacterial infection. So that means that having a confirmed viral infection could confound your procalcitonin testing. These authors looked at 663 infants aged 8 to 60 days and found that the procalcitonin was indeed lower in infants who had bacterial infections and also had confirmed viral infections compared to those who had bacterial infections but no confirmed viral infection. The median procalcitonin score was 0.36 if they had the virus present and 0.89 without. So when it's positive, it's great. It remains specific, but you lose some sensitivity. So if your viral panel is positive, then your negative procalcitonin can be a little bit falsely reassuring. This wasn't an enormous study, and it is just from a single center, but it still gives you something to think about. Perhaps the procalcitonin threshold of 0.5 recommended by the AAP should be decreased in the setting of a concomitant viral infection. There is evidence to support a threshold of 0.3 nanograms per ml instead. We could try that. Some people use it. Anyways, just so we all remember, a positive viral test isn't always completely reassuring, and apparently it can be kind of confounding. In a spoonful, in febrile infants, procalcitonin levels are suppressed by viral infections, even in the presence of a bacterial infection, lowering the sensitivity of procalcitonin for those bacterial infections. Just be conscious of this. Luckily, procalcitonin isn't the only inflammatory marker that we look at. Okay, that's all we learned from today. Let's do a quick wrap-up. From the first article, ketamine or atomidate, they are both still good choices for RSI in the emergency department from this RCT, and they don't seem to make a difference in the patient's SOFA score over the next few days. From the fourth article, viral infections in infants not only don't elevate the procalcitonin, but they might even suppress it, even in the presence of a bacterial infection. And then from the fifth article, I'd like to see if this holds up to randomization, but in this observational trial, the flotrival intravascular thrombectomy device was working very well for massive PEs. Now again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not part of the member's feed, and you actually missed three articles from this past week. One talked about how just because your patient doesn't have any wiggle in them doesn't mean they're not seizing. And then we talked all about hemolytic uremic syndrome. And finally, we tried out the Flotriever device for massive PEs. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.